Hello and welcome to the Barcast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, and this is episode 12. Um, We're on a little bit of a roll. I think this is the third consecutive week that we'll be recording. Um, I certainly make no threats or promises about keeping this pace. Um, But after after the last episode in which we talked about uh, nihilism, um, I kind of had this particular passage stick with me, and it's from the Parable of the Madman, which we read um, by Nietzsche. Um, The madman um, comes to town and gives his famous line, God is dead and we've killed him. Um, He sort of gets laughed out of the room. Not because the village is um, full of a God-fearing population, but uh, because they're sort of uh, smarmy atheists who believe there is no God. Um, they don't really understand the enormity of their deed, which is that they've they've killed off um, sort of this foundational pillar of their lives, which is uh, religion and the belief in absolute deity, um, and so they're not really aware of. Uh, this gaping hole in their lives yet this sort of meaninglessness or nihilism. Um, and so that's what, that's what really the madman's trying to call to their attention is, Hey, what, what are we going to do now? Um, anyway, he, he doesn't make any headway. Um, at the very end, he resigns himself and says, I've come too early. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most stars, and yet they've done it themselves. Um, And I was just sort of struck by the the imagery of that passage. um, And then remembered uh, something kind of similar or in a similar vein from Gertrude Stein in her portrait of Picasso. And I wanted to share that today. Um, it's very, uh, it's used to, for a very different reason than Nietzsche's, um, in terms of, you know, so Nietzsche here is talking about nihilism. Stein is really talking about artistry. And, uh, if you're not familiar with Gertrude Stein, I can't recommend her enough. Um, please message me. Like I'm happy to be sort of a Stein ambassador for me. She's probably the most important thinker of the 20th century. Um, and her portrait of, of Picasso is like really, really accessible um, and excellent. Um, you know, she was there. So uh, if you've seen that, what's it called? Midnight in Paris movie. Um, I think that's sort of maybe the most famous pop culture portrayal of Stein. Uh, Kathy Bates plays her. Actually, I actually haven't seen the movie, but uh, Stein had a salon. She was... Um, moneyed, um, and she was a patron of Picasso and a whole bunch of other great artists in Paris, um, you know, in the tens and twenties and aughts. Um, anyway, I want to read this passage from Stein's portrait on Picasso. I think the book is just called Picasso. Um, I'm reading from a PDF, so there might be some clicking and scrolling. I apologize for that. Someone has my book. If you're listening and you have my book, please return it. Um, But here is Stein on Picasso, Um, and I think the passage will explain itself. This should take about three minutes or so. Um, The good part's sort of in the middle, but I think it's worth leading up to it with the context. Jean Cocteau left for Rome with Picasso in 1917 to prepare Parade. 
It was the first time that I saw Cocteau that came together to say goodbye. Picasso was very gay. Not so gay as in the days of the great Cubist gaiety, but gay enough. He and Cocteau were gay. Picasso was pleased to be leaving. He had never seen Italy. He had never enjoyed traveling. He always went where others already were. Picasso never had the pleasure of initiative. As he used to say of himself, he has a weak character and he allowed others to make decisions. That is the way it is. It was enough that he should do his work. Decisions are never important. Why make them? So cubism was to be put on the stage. That was really the beginning of the general recognition of Picasso's work. When a work is put on the stage, of course, everyone has to look at it. And in a sense, if it is put on the stage, everyone is forced to look. And since they are forced to look at it, of course, they must accept it. There is nothing else to do. In the spring of 1917, Picasso was in Italy with Diaghilev and with Cocteau, and he made the stage settings and the costumes for Parade, which is completely Cubist. It had a great success. It was produced and accepted, of course. From the moment it was put on the stage, of course, it was accepted. So the Great War continued, but it was nearing its end. And the War of Cubism, it too is commencing to end. No war is never ended. Of course not. It only has the appearance of stopping. So Picasso's struggle continued, but for the moment it appeared to have been won by himself, for himself, and by him, for the world. It's an extraordinary thing, but it is true. Wars are only a means of publicizing the things already accomplished. A change, a complete change, has come about. People no longer think as they were thinking, but no one knows it, no one recognizes it, no one really knows it except the creators. The others are too busy with the business of life, they cannot feel what has happened, but the creator, the real creator, does nothing. He's not concerned with the activity of existing, and as he's not active, that is to say as he is not concerned with the activity of existence, he is sensitive enough to understand how people are thinking. He is not interested in knowing how they were thinking. His sensitive feeling is concerned in understanding how people live as they are living. The spirit of everybody is changed, of a whole people is changed, but mostly nobody knows it, and a war forces them to recognize it because during a war, the appearance of everything changes very much quicker. But really, the entire change has been accomplished and the war is only something which forces everybody to recognize it. The French Revolution was over when war forced everyone to recognize it. The American Revolution was accomplished before the war. The war is only a publicity agent, which makes everyone know what has happened. Yes, it is that. So then the public recognizes a creator who has seen the change which has been accomplished before a war, and which has been expressed by the war, and by the war, the world is forced to recognize the entire change in everything. They're forced to look at the creator who, before anyone, knew it and expressed it. A creator is not in advance of his, of his generation, but he is the first of his contemporaries to be conscious of what is happening to his generation. A creator who creates, who is not an, academic, an academician, who is not someone who studies in a school where the rules are already known, and of course, being known, they no longer exist. A creator then who creates is necessarily of his generation. His generation lives in its contemporary way, but they only live in it. In art, in literature, in the theater, in short, in everything that does not contribute to their immediate comfort, they live in the preceding generation. It's very simple. Today in the streets of Paris, 
Horses, even tramcars, can no longer exist. But horses and tramcars are only suppressed when they cause too many complications. They're suppressed, but 60 years too late. Lord Grey said when the war broke out that the generals thought of a war of the 19th century, even when the instruments of war were of the 20th century, and only when the war was at its height did the generals understand that it was a war of the 20th century and not a war of the 19th century. That's what the academic spirit is. It's not contemporary. Of course not. So it cannot be creative because the only thing that is creative in a creator is the contemporary thing, of course. Um, so we'll stop there. Uh, I hope I didn't lose you. That That's a long passage, but it's so rich and awesome in a confluence of so many things that I like, um, of Gertrude Stein, of uh, World War One kind of uh, history. I just listened to, on vacation, um, the Dan Carlin, uh, I think it's called Blueprints of Armageddon, sort of the multi-part podcast about World War One. Um, we're talking about what it, uh, artistry, um, we're talking about, um, criticism, um, we're talking about, um, sensitivity, um, we're talking about, um, school, yeah, academies, um, so there's so much unpackage and we're not going to get to it, um, all in this episode. I'm sure we'll refer back to Stein in the future. Um, I guess a, a good enough starting point is that word um, sensitivity, right? So, um, you know, for for Stein, uh, Picasso's genius was his sensitivity, his uh, anticipation. Uh, well, again, anticipation isn't the right word, right? Because the deed is already done, to paraphrase Nietzsche. Like, it, he's not a prophet. He's not John the Baptist. He's just sort of the first to tune into what's already happening. He's very sensitive to how people, not how people are thinking. Um, he's not interested in knowing how they were thinking. His sensitive feeling is concerned in understanding how people live as they are living. He's just seeing. He's, he's observing. And I mean, maybe uh, you're at home listening to this and sort of say like, duh, artists are perceptive. Um, maybe this is only sort of uh, fascinating to me, but, um, you know, I, I want to go back to sensitivity for a second. I, what I think is interesting about just about the word sensitive is, is this dual meaning it has, right? So, um, we can talk about artists being sensitive, but usually what we mean is they're fragile. Um, they're easily injured. Um, their egos are tender. Um, but here we're using sensitive in a completely different meaning, which is to say they're tuned in, um, they are um, uh, sensitive in the sense of being, um, I don't know why, I just sort of have the, the image of, you know, having a bunch of feelers out, right? Like you think about sort of those uh, amoeba or simple celled organisms, um, you know, they've got those little, uh, gosh, I wish I knew the, the word for them. Are they, they're not flagellum. A flagella are like those long tails, right? But they're just like the little creepy crawlies all the way around the cell. Um, and they're just sort of tuning into everything around them. That's that's sort of my image of Picasso and of the artist that um, Stein is describing. Um, and that sensitivity, uh, you know, maybe it's innate. 
uh, or maybe it's learned or whatever, but uh, importantly, like that only happens when you have no life um, first time, right? Others are too busy with the business of life. They can't feel what's happened. The creator does nothing. He's not concerned with the activity of existing. I love that. He's not concerned with the activity of existing and he's not active. That is to say, he's not concerned with the activity of existence. Um, you know, we've been having some interesting conversations uh, lately about meaning in life and, you know, live life to the fullest. I, what I think is so interesting is like living life to the fullest here is anti-artistry, right? If you're living life to the fullest, uh, it's almost an, another opiate of the people, right? Go on amazing trips, climb mountains, have the best experiences, um, sort of to dull your sensitivity. Um, the real artist has, has no life. Going back to sort of the early description of Picasso, Picasso had never seen Italy, never enjoyed traveling. Um, he never had the pleasure of initiative. As he used to say of himself, he's a weak character. He lets other people make the decisions. That's the way it should be. That way he can do his work. Decisions aren't important. Why make them? This embracing of like a lack of agency feels at first glance so anti-artist, right? I mean, isn't an artist always making decisions? But again, in, in this portrait, an artist is simply observing um, and recording uh, his observations. An artist is almost a scientist, um, but he's a scientist of phenomena. Um, again, th this, this whole piece is, is really well worth reading. The, the essay is not long, um, and it's so, so, so good. Uh, Stein herself is an artist, a, a brilliant artist. She would describe herself as a cubist of writing. Um, whether or not we mm, embrace that self-description is a subject for another day. Um, but gosh, like reading about a great artist through a great artist's words is a, a real treat. Um, and I encourage you to check it out. Um, I think I'm going to stop this podcast here. We'll do a, we'll do a quick one. Um, I do want to say more about artistry and more about creators. It's so funny she uses the word creator. It's such like a web 2.0, 2016. Hey, creators. Um, hey, creatives. Uh, but she does use the word creator for Picasso, which uh, going back is sort of has a little bit of tension between, you know, that description and what she says he actually does, which is not a creator. He doesn't bring things about. He's simply sort of the right person in the moment to describe what he is seeing. Um, and what he is seeing is what everyone else is living, but by living it, they are seeing through um, sort of the previous generation's eyes. Um, yeah, so so maybe next time we'll, we'll say more about artistry, more about creators, more about critics. Um, I'm certainly um, thinking about that a lot lately as I um, post these podcasts because of course I'm being critical of, um, other people, um, who for the most part are, um, doing better work than me. Um, and so I've been introspective lately about my role as critic, um, and other people's roles as creators and how we can evaluate them. And so we'll have more to say about that next time. Um, but for now we'll leave off, um, with this passage on, on Picasso by Stein. Um, about his sensitivity. See you next time.